Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and as usual, when he's not on holidays, I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. I love that introduction, particularly the word about a billionaire, because we've got a billionaire on the program today. Uh, we do. And uh, I, I don't think I hope to be billionaire, but someone has made an interesting transition from being a broker to fund manager, uh, one and only Charlie Aitken. So uh, yeah. I don't know if it's billionaire's week, is it? <laughs> well, one is a billionaire, one is a would-be billionaire. And I think the, the bottom line is what we're, we're, we're going to try and do with Charlie Aitken is actually understand the journey because it's a big gamble. He, he actually sold his house. You know, and his, right. his wife was on board. I remember reading it in the newspaper, sold a, a very expensive house in Darling Point to start a business. I think that takes guts. It, it does take a lot of guts. It gives me another segue. I'm, I'm hot on this B&A thing because that's one of the debates at the moment we think about sort of what the government is doing about uh, the work they've been done to get their surplus back on track and whether mm. they should actually billions. be splurging that those billions on. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say hardworking people like you and I, Peter, but they're probably some others who are a little more... More, more needy. <laughs> more needy, but uh, yeah. it's an interesting debate going on there. What, what do you think about uh, the government sort of... Uh, I don't like the rate cuts, Paul. They, they're gone too yeah, far. Yeah, I think the rate cuts are, are wrong. But people. what about the government? Does it need to do more or is yeah. it just... Um, I, I think uh, Josh uh, Frydenberg and Scott Morrison need to um, you know, take the bit between the teeth and start cutting um, the, um, the, the budget deficit. Oh, sorry increase the budget deficit for the sake of the economy. But, and it's, I not, hate, but like, it's not really emergency settings, Peter. I mean, I, I, I take the line that they're saying that uh, you've got to keep this stuff aside for the rainy days. Is it really sort of time to draw down on that? I, I think it's – my experience is this, Paul, and it goes back to when John Howard was treasurer. And John Howard, uh, you know, very responsibly wanted to go for a budget surplus in early 1980-something. It would have been probably, the election was 83, so it's probably 81, mm -hmm. 82. And it was when a, a worldwide recession was coming, basically coming out of the US. I think Ronald Reagan was probably still president. Uh, there was that missile crisis as well, the MX missile crisis. I remember writing, you probably were in primary school at the time, Paul, so you don't remember this. But the bottom line is, what happened was a recession came to Australia and when the treasurer... Treasurer John Howard wanted to actually get a surplus. End result was he had a much bigger budget deficit than you could imagine because if you take away demand yeah. from an economy at a time when it's slowing down, you end up with more people out of work and less tax collection. So automatically your budget deficit blows out. I think if they actually were quite judicious and maybe giving New Start people more money, they'd spend it all. Um, I would do that kind of thing at this point in time rather than any more interest rate cuts. Well, we do digress. Shane Oliver's coming up and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. sure you'll put that to him. Well, you're the one who put me under pressure. I couldn't remember. Is it the MX missile crisis? Something like that. The something bottom, like the MX missile like crisis. Right. I, I sort of that has a hazy 
Rings a bell somewhere. It does ring a bell somewhere. The bottom line is... Um, I can't think what an MX missile was. No, you can't. Or the crisis. Um, but the bottom line is uh, we've got some very successful people here. And Shane Oliver's been a success in his mm. own right. He's probably one of the most well-known economists in the country. And it's very good for the AMP brand, quite frankly, at a time when not a real lot is. Um, Let's concentrate on the success stories of particularly Charlie and Jerry. And I think a lot of people will get a lot of um, great learnings. I hate that word. It's a new word. People start using a word like learnings. I also hate the word batters. You know, batsmen have become batters. Well, I think, I, think, I think you've got to get with the, uh, the, the gender policy, oh, Peter. What can we call a batswoman a batswoman? I thought the interesting thing yesterday, I was listening to the women's, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, the... The, the, the w, women's cricket's the, good. The WBL, is that yeah. what it's called, right? And they didn't do a toss, they did a bat flip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I wish that in the street. You oh, used that when you didn't have a coin, yeah, right? Maybe right. no one has coins. Anyway, we do digress. <laughs> we we do need digress. to move on. Well, you know, here at Switzerland, we always like to get people who are successful and to try and work out why they're successful. Now, one guy who would, you know on his own admission, say successful, is Charlie Aitken. Oh, <laughs> I absolutely would not. No, I know, I know. But Charlie, the thing is this. The reality is you started off as a stockbroker. You are now a fund manager. You've been shown support by some you know, pretty influential Australians who will remain nameless. But the bottom line is you've gone from being nothing to something. And are people always interested in the path that someone has trudged along to go from one level to the next. And so what Paul Rickard and I want to do is try and get inside your brain to see how you did it and what you learned along the way. Are you prepared to take this very risky challenge? Yes, I will take that challenge, Peter. <laughs> it could be interesting. I've got to say, ladies and gentlemen, I did bounce him without any um, notice. But to be fair to me, I have walked straight into this ambush. <laughs> That's right. and, it's, and it's the beauty of the Switzer show, that we ambush very talented people. Charlie, I first got to know you reading your, your terrific assessments. I think the company was, was it Southern Cross? Equities, yes. Equities, yeah. And uh, you, you, you were virtually writing about stocks. Was this the first time you had a foray into, in a sense, the media? Oh, well, no, it was never really intended to be a sort of media document slash exercise. I started in equities about 25 years ago with Citibank, mm. uh, and I just wrote a note to the London desk about the London Broking Desk about what had happened in Australia today or what had we'd seen that was interesting. Mm. Then some clients wanted that, and it just got a bit bigger and bigger and mm. bigger, and then eventually we started another business called Southern Cross Equities, and I wrote a daily note there called Under the Southern Cross, and mm. it, just got a bit of a following. I suppose it was in the days before blogs and, and, and the internet really taking off. And mm. it just, it was, it was sort of accidental. It just grew into something. But I enjoyed writing it. Mm. Uh, uh, so we're going to talk about the transition to being a fund manager, mm. but just how, how, how many people were reading your blog or your note when you left? I mean, how, how, how big had it become? I don't know is the answer to that. I think we sent it directly to many thousand because I was at Bell Potter mm -hmm. at the end. So there was 370 advisors and they all had the ability to send it to whoever they'd like. So if you, you could probably judge a bit by the price impact you could have on share share prices on a daily basis if you said something. You had to be very careful with that from a regulatory perspective, obviously. Yeah. And so you didn't trade yourself or do anything stupid. 
But look, it was starting to have quite a big impact on you know stocks on what what we would say or what we would you know do. So look, I think the readership was pretty big in the end. But look, it wasn't all about that. I mean, it really it was you know that's sort of nice. It was really the whole goal of it was to try and I had I had one overarching thing written on my um, written on my computer. It was make them laugh, make them think, make them money. Mm. That was my approach. So yeah. every note that went out had a little bit of humour. Tried to make people think, but the mm. o- overarching goal was to help people make money. At the end of the day. Um, what you did was you built a brand. A little bit. Uh, and uh, that brand then became uh, the basis of... Um... Well, what really happened, Peter, is a couple of people said, would you ever look after money? Mm. You, know, you seem okay at writing about money, yeah. you know, and shares and things, but can would you actually look after some? I thought, well, my father was a fund manager. He was the chief executive of Perpetual the, and, and was a long-standing fund manager. Yeah. So... I spoke so to the him. pedigrees, <coughs> well, in the spirit of the Melbourne Cup coming well, up, there was a breeding there. Yeah, it was a bit like being a doctor's son, really. Yeah. You end up being a doctor, but yeah. it's not not that far from the from uh, getting thrown from the horse. Stock doctor, we'll call it. Stock doctor. <laughs> no, but Dad, Dad you know, I think it's a natural progression from broking to funds management. But yeah. it's a diff- it's a totally different game. So, so how for our Listeners, how is it different? Well, everything is different. I mean, the only thing that's the same are the stocks that are involved. Yeah, that's it. So in a broking world, you know, we're trying to make people transact. You know, we get paid on transactions and making people move and raising capital for, for, for companies. Mm. So it's a transaction action-based industry. Mm-hmm. In asset management, the best days we have in funds management are doing nothing, absolutely nothing. We don't touch the portfolio. We don't place a trade. We don't change a stock. If we have a week like that, even better. We have a month like that, even better. We have a year like that, even better. Particularly if the prices are going Correct. up, no, if, if you're long only. It's, the hardest thing is that, Broking is an activity game and funds management is a low activity game. Mm. And, and, and totally different mindset. You, 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 mm. it's, so and what are the different sort of stresses? I mean, I guess as a broker, you've got to, the stresses about getting people to deal. Yep. Because you do, that's how you get paid if they transact. What about funds management? Is, is it a more stressful business? Well, I think yes is the answer. I think in broking, the market's open every day and you get paid for selling too. Mm-hmm. So if the market's going down, you can always find someone to sell something. And, you know, and there's mm-hmm. always a capital raising somewhere. So yeah. there's always activity. If you look at the ASX's turnover, it's pretty similar every day, mm-hmm. you know, give or take, whether it's a public holiday. So there's always action. You get paid for selling as well. So, but there's still structural pressures in broking. One of the reasons I decided it was enough of broking is that eventually transaction costs, you know, brokerage will be zero. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's heading that way. The, the, the fees for capital raising are probably still too high on the ASX for, for brokers. And so it's a business that's under structural pressure. But then again, so is funds management. But for me, they're different stresses. The, 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 the one, giving advice and talking about money is one thing. Actually physically looking after and being responsible for people's money, as mm. I am in the fund, mm. is a higher responsibility. Mm. You know, with every bit of research or advice we sent out as a broker, it was 5,000 disclaimers about <laughs> this is really your own problem. And you got another you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Okay, This is your own problem. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I could say what I like, but if you don't read this bit, I mean, if it goes down, well, it could go down. Yeah, right. In asset management, you're only judged on one thing, Peter, and that mm. is your performance. Mm. It's as simple as that. It's a number. It's it's not debatable. Mm. It's it's the pro- Is the process repeatable and is the performance better than the passive option mm. can can this fund manager and his team deliver a return that's better than the passive option because quite frankly the passive option is free it mm. is fee free well, nowadays would your life have been easier uh, as a, a newcomer to funds management if donald trump didn't come along 
No, I, I think he's been helpful. The US mm. market's at all-time highs. Mm. doesn't matter what your politics... But your Chinese players were... Yeah, that hurt me last year, yeah. but that was my own doing a little bit too. We made a mistake there. I mean, the one thing with all this, you've got to admit when you make a mistake, deal mm. with it and move on. Mm. You know, if you've made a mistake, you don't point fingers, you've made a mistake yeah. you know, in terms of asset allocation or where you're allocated capital. But this year's been much better for us. Mm. You know, we're mostly invested in very high-quality American companies across a diverse range of sectors that are just doing nicely for yeah. us. And that's there's a lesson mm-hmm. in that. There is a bit of hair and tortoise and everything. I think we got a little bit too hair. Mm-hmm. Now, we were starting a fund. We wanted to get good numbers. Probably took a bit too much risk. Yeah. Where if we were taking the tortoise approach of just take buying the best companies we can and sticking with them and getting the compounding effect, we'd have better numbers. But okay. we're doing that now. So what? Well, I was going to ask him, well, that's one of the challenges of being a fund manager, is you can be right but not right about the timing. That's the other aspect. Mm-hmm. How much is sort of monthly versus quarterly numbers? Yeah, the know, monthly is, thing is, is that... the biggest frustration. It's almost farcical, Paul. You know, like 20 trading days on in a given exchange, nothing, ha- nothing changes inside a given company. But the share prices do because, you know, they're, they're traded by people who, you know, some people are trading for one minute. Mm-hmm. So the hardest thing is... You can report a monthly number, but it just might have been the day everything was down. Mm-hmm. And it looks like you didn't have a good month. And of course, the first day of the next month, everything's better. Look, the real way to judge a fund manager, I think, is the minimum period is six months. Mm-hmm. And you really should be looking at three to five years. Mm-hmm. Because everyone's going to have some mistakes or you can't judge on monthly performance. I'm not mm-hmm. making trying to get away, make excuses, but we don't run the money like that. Mm-hmm. We don't invest for a month. We try and invest for three to five years in great businesses and compound and collect the dividends and do it do it quietly. Mm. But it's the greatest mismatch is that no one's running a company on a monthly basis. We're no, buying shares no. in these companies that are not set off monthly strategy, but we're getting marked on monthly performance because mm. we have the great advantage of liquidity and equities, but the great disadvantage of liquidity as well. They're mm. open every day and they trade every day. So you can be wrong for periods, mm-hmm. inverted commas, and then be spectacularly right once everyone's taking their money out of your fund. Okay. Yeah, that's how it works. I've got to ask this question because this, this must have take, taken an enormous courage. I think going from being a broker to a fund manager is a courageous act in the same right. But you also took on the courageous act of convincing your wife it's a good idea to sell your house yep. to start this business. How easy was that sell? And you know, when, when you had some rough times, you know, did you have to sort of keep repeating that you you believe in the, the model you're... No, no, no. Ellie, this was a, Ellie was absolutely fantastic. Like, you know, the house thing, it's just... It's an asset, right? Mm. It was a big asset. It was a big show-off. It was, show, a, it was a big show-off mm. Eastern Suburbs house, right? right? And we had a mortgage too. And one thing we both decided is that when you start a small business, you can't be beholden to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We wanted no bank debt. Mm. We, so if this... If AIM didn't do as well as we'd hoped, that we weren't going to be blown completely to smithereens by having bank debt we couldn't service. So we made a decision, let's pay off all our bank debt, let's operate with cash, and let's let's be sustainable and through, through the cycle. Mm. So, you know what, the funny thing about selling that house is there's been no opportunity cost in selling. It hasn't gone up, mm. it's probably gone down actually, mm. a little bit, and it's a big liquid, a big illiquid asset. Now mm. we have all our money in the fund, quite mm. frankly, mm. so we're aligned to the investors, we go with the ups and downs of the investors, and but I don't owe anyone anything. And that's, mm. if you're gonna have a small business, you're going to take a risk. Don't do it with a pile of debt as well. So okay. try, try and do it with a clean shirt. And, and just on the sort yeah. of dealing with issues, I mean, you also have uh, copped quite a bit of publicity and press, some of it not so flattering. Not so flattering. They loved him for a while, didn't they? About your family. They did I mean, love him for a while. How, did that, a, did that surprise you? And B, what are the sort of uh, – do you take any lessons in terms of out of that, in terms of profile and, and, uh, and how you might manage that a little bit yeah. differently going forward? 
No, it's interesting. The bit I don't like is any, you know, bringing personal attacks, bringing my family into it. I yeah, think that's absolutely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. If I make a mistake, it's me who makes a mistake yeah. on my team with the investments and conjoining that to my family or anything else is out is absolutely wrong. Mm. Now, but in, in defence of the press, you mean, I made a, a name for myself and had influence by using them a little mm-hmm. bit on the way up. Mm-hmm. So when you have one bad year, yeah. you cannot not expect a kicking on the way down. But I would say, I mean, the Australian press is quite vindictive. You can see it in many, many situations. Yeah. The Australian financial press really gets stuck into people on the way down. But you just have to – I've only got one rule, Pete, and I've, I've actually said this to people in pressing, call me whatever you like. I prefer my family left out of it, mm. but never call me dishonest because mm. I'm not dishonest. Mm. You know, I've made some mistakes last year and we, we had pretty poor performance, but we're going well this year. But as long as, you know, they're not calling you dishonest, I just get on with it. I actually see it as a motivating factor, to be honest. Mm. It's like, you know what, I know I'm not the stupidest bloke out there. I know mm. I made some mistakes. But I know I can, you know, rebuild rebuild people's uh, faith in their ability to look after money. But Paul, to be honest, it, you know, it's there's days it gets to you. you you've got to be truthful about that. Yeah. There's days when you're reading articles about yourself, going, "Oh, that's nice." You're learning something. That's nice. But look, you know, we're all big boys. Mm. You know, yeah, you've got to be resilient. No one's ever built a great business, you know, without having some resilience. But you've got to take the emotion out of it. You've got to focus on what you're doing and why you were doing it. And I will never, ever quit at this. Never. Ever. I can see that it works. I, I enjoy it. I've got a good team around me. I've got you know, good people support me. It, I enjoy it. And like, you know, but I do understand that if you're going to use the press to build your business, you're going to be on the receiving end on yeah, the way down. Exactly right. Charlie Aiken, Aiken Investment Management, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And that was Charlie Aiken, the founder of Aiken Investment Management. So are you investing for income but finding it difficult with the current interest rates levels? Join us at the Switzer Income Conference and Masterclass in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and hear from some of Australia's finest finance minds. On the day, they'll tell you how they're investing for income and show you how to navigate Dr. Phil Lowe's next interest rate decision. To purchase tickets for the day, head to www.switzerevents.com.au and we'll see you there. I should say that's Monday the 11th of November in Sydney, Mm. Tuesday the 19th of November in Melbourne Mm. and Wednesday the 20th of November in Brisbane. I got that without any piece of paper That's in front right. of me. He, he wasn't really, he was actually thinking and talking at the same time. There aren't many people in the media who can do that. My next guest is Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. And I'm really keen to know what Shane thinks about this debate at the moment, Paul. We've, we've heard even Peter Costello got involved. He's not keen on the budget deficit being reduced. It, it is a big debate, Peter, and, and watching insiders on, on Sunday, they were really grilling. Uh, the whole focus was about the argument about whether the government should actually spend more. So mm. I think it's a Who big are they issue. Grilling? Who are they grilling? Well, they grilled the, um, not the energy minister, but uh, I'll have to think who was who was the... It was the Attorney General. Oh, it was okay. a little bit outside brief, but yeah. the focus of the political insider talk, chatter, mm. Mm. was about the, about the la- Labor's attack on not spending and uh, relying on uh, this whole putting the, the budget as being the, sorry, the budget surplus as the number yeah. one priority for, for as, and it's really sort of the, this is the way the government's going to say whether they're a good manager or not. It's mm. all about the surplus. I, I think it's an interesting debate. It is, and I actually said, will they cut the budget deficit? They'd have to increase the budget deficit if they want to stop interest rates from going down any further. So without any further ado, let's go to Shane Oliver and pick up what he thinks is the um, 
the more learned view on the subject. Shane Oliver, AMP Capital, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. Great to be here. Now, let me just hit you straight up. Scott uh, Morrison and Josh Frydenberg seem hell-bent on preserving their budget surplus that's you know, due to, to arrive sooner or later. Um, are they too focused on that for the way the economy is going? Well, I think they are. It's important to keep the budget in good shape. And I think it's great news that we're heading back towards a budget surplus. But at the end of the day, what ultimately matters is keeping the economy growing. And if we have to sacrifice uh, the date when we return to surplus or the size of that surplus in the interest of keeping the economy growing, then so be it. I think the reality is that in Australia, our public finances are in pretty good shape compared to many other countries around the world. So we do have a bit of flexibility there. And it's also the case that if you do a bit of fiscal stimulus now, it, uh, it takes pressure off the Reserve Bank and ultimately brings towards the time when the economy gets back to, to potential and ultimately we see higher inflation. So, and that could also head off a worse outcome for the economy down the track and ultimately help preserve um, the size of the fiscal surplus. If you leave it too late, the risk is that the budget uh, might end up looking worse. Mm. So it's like a stitch in time saves nine. That's about it. So I think uh, there's a case to do something sooner rather than later. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to uh, forego the surplus altogether. It does seem to be a little bit of fat in there to um, undertake some stimulus but still keep keep the surplus on track for their current financial year. Okay, Sean, the the level, and you alluded to it, the level of government debt... uh, for Australia compared to the equivalent economies. We're, we are in a much stronger position, aren't we? We certainly are. I mean, we've, we've seen a run of, uh, with 11 years of deficits, but they, they've been, for most years they've been pretty small. And when you look at the total level of public debt, depending on how you measure it, it's around 30 or 40% of GDP. I think if you look in net terms, it's, it's a little bit less than that once you look at the assets of the Reserve Bank and others. Whereas if you look at other countries around the world, in Europe it's something like 90% of GDP. In the US it's uh, around 100% of GDP. And in Japan it's uh, about about 200% of GDP. So in the great scheme of things, we're in pretty good shape. We don't have a lot of public debt compared to other major countries. I guess you could say, well, we don't want to compare ourselves to a bad bunch. But by the same token... Um, public debt around current levels is not extreme, particularly when the government is borrowing 10 years at uh, 1% or so. So I don't, I don't think you know, letting that public debt increase a little bit further or, 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 or reducing it at a slower rate going forward with the surplus is necessarily a bad thing. Um, the, the economic policy making is always about trade-offs. You know, when the economy was growing at 3% and unemployment was going down, you know, it made sense to head back towards surplus the most I, I thought we should have got back to surplus quicker. But uh, with the economy running below potential, running well below 3%, the latest number was 1.4%, um, I think you know, you've got to focus on the broader economy rather than just the surplus per se. Okay, let's go to the Peter Costello view, which he um, propagated last week. And he said that you know, with a trade surplus and a current account surplus and unemployment at 5.2%, inflation good, yeah, you know, why even think about cutting interest rates? Yeah, you know, and and don't 
you know, increase the budget deficit. Instead, just go for more deregulation. When you read that, Shane, what did you think? Uh, I thought, yeah, there's an element of truth in that. Um, I thought you said it nicely like that, the element <laughs> of truth. You've got to be nice. You've got to be nice. I know. Um, but, yeah, I think he's ignoring the, the problem that the Reserve Bank has. Uh, its problem is that it's mandated to achieve 2 to 3% inflation over time on average through the cycle. The problem is the last five years or so, we've been running below that, so it hasn't been achieving its mandate. It also has a mandate to achieve full employment in the economy, and with 5.2% unemployment and something like 8.5% underemployment, we're a long way from full employment. In other words, there's a lot of spare capacity in the economy. We're not fully employed. So the Reserve Bank is really just responding to its mandate. Now, in an ideal world, you'd get more help out of Canberra. Uh, the Reserve Bank governor has said on multiple occasions that uh, we need more help from Canberra, both in terms of um, you know, structural policies to boost economic growth and, in other words, more economic reform, uh, which is what Peter Costello was talking about, and also more fiscal stimulus. So I, I, I kind of think, what Peter Costello said is sort of part right, but I think it ignores the problems confronting the Reserve Bank and the fact that it does have that mandate. And the other thing to note is that when the coalition government was elected uh, or came to power in 2013, the initial focus through to 2014 was on getting structural reforms going. In fact, you know, Australia had a G, famous G20 meeting here when it was all about adding up structural reforms, getting other countries to do the same sort of thing to try and boost growth. And we did a little bit of that. We've done uh, infrastructure spending, it argues, partly a structural reform, the asset recycling program. Uh, doesn't mean you, you blow your budget deficit, but does uh, does encourage more uh, infrastructure spending. But we haven't done a lot. Mm. And I, I would agree with Peter Costello that we need to focus more on that one as well. But I, my take on it is this. As we get towards lower and lower interest rates, yes, the impact on the economy becomes less and less, and we do run this risk that we just reignite another housing bubble. So therefore, we should be shifting focus from the Reserve Bank towards Canberra, towards structural policies to boost growth, and also fiscal stimulus. I'd probably go hard as I can on structural policies, um, and a little bit lighter initially on fiscal stimulus, but I think you do need a mix of both. And to the extent that Peter Costello is just highlighting that ever lower interest rates won't necessarily uh, help. I mean, there's always a degree to which when you cut interest rates, when you print more money, that you're pushing on a string. Uh, a way around that and a way to do that in a fairer way is to undertake um, something with a more guaranteed impact and structural policies and fiscal stimulus do that. Yeah, it seems to me that you know, if we do need to get people out there confidently spending... You have to give them money, I reckon, and you know, tax cuts to the right people may well be the best short-term measure. And what Peter Costello is talking about has you know real long-term value. It, I, I kind of use the comparison: you get an overweight guy who's com- had a heart attack in the MCG, the grand final, and he's lying there desperate, looking for something to save his life. And some bloke yells out, "Put him on a low-fat diet." Well. That's that's really not going to help him at that point in time. He needs a couple of those little eyes, yeah. you know, where they rub them together and whack him on his on his heart. But I reckon that's what we kind of need in many ways. But that's my view on that. On yeah, that. No, that's that's true. If, yeah. if you want to get spending happening in the economy, do it in a guaranteed way. I mean, we have a lot of debate about this when it comes to political increased new start. You can virtually guarantee that 
yeah. every one dollar increase in use state, you'll get one dollar in spending. Yeah. So that that is one way to do it. I think another option is um, accelerated depreciation or instant asset write-offs for, for larger companies as opposed to just smaller companies. That is definitely get an impact and also just giving uh, yeah, more tax breaks for low and middle income earners, uh, yeah. bringing forward part of the stage two tax cut. So uh, they would be the things I would focus on in terms of structural reforms. Yeah, the, the degree of what you're saying there is right. In the days of Paul Keating, we used to talk about the JQ. You, know, you do the reform, initially things get worse before they get better. So yeah. there is that risk yeah. um, that, uh, you know, if, um, that that happens, that, Depends what I guess what sort of reforms you do. If you, if you remove um, red tape, for example, just free things up for businesses, then maybe they could act more quickly. Mm. But some other structural reforms could slow things down initially. So you've got to be careful what you do there, um, and and you know, only do things that are going to boost the economy in the short term, not not uh, in ten years' time, but make things worse in the short term. Okay, here's the last question I've got for you, mate. Will we see more rate cuts from the Reserve Bank? I think we will. Uh, obviously, a lot of debate about that. I think the consensus is uh, one more cut probably next year. Uh, we think we'll probably see another one this year and one early next year. Um, it's not my preference. Uh, I would prefer to see more fiscal stimulus coming as opposed to more rate cuts. But I get the impression that uh, Canberra is still more focused on the budget surplus, as we were discussing earlier, and that they're not in a rush to do fiscal stimulus. So therefore, the pressure falls back on the Reserve Bank. They have a mandate. If they're not meeting their mandate, they'll have to do something. And initially, that will involve rate cuts. Eventually, it could involve other things as well. But initially, it would involve more rate cuts. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm assuming. One more cut, either in November or December, and another one early next year. Beyond that, well, hopefully, hopefully, fiscal stimulus comes along and the economy perks up. But if not, then I think... Uh, I don't see the Reserve Bank going negative. I don't see the Reserve Bank going to zero because I don't think those things would help. Mm. I think then you've got to start thinking about quantitative easing. Now, as I said, hopefully we don't get to that point. And before we do get to that point, if we do, that we see fiscal stimulus. Okay, here's my, here's my last, last question. If we see a trade deal of you know, greater implication than the phase one trade deal, do you think they'll have a big impact on international confidence, business investment, and the need for central banks to cut interest rates? Uh, I think it would. Phase one is just about um, another truce in the trade war. But if we saw a phase two coming quickly on the back of phase one where the tariff hikes that have already been put through by the US and China are unwound to some degree, then I think that would provide a huge boost to confidence globally. And uh, obviously that would be reflected in share markets initially, but it would be reflected, I think, um, over time in stronger growth. You know, one of the things you note about this economic downturn, it does look a bit like the ones we saw in 2011-12, which was associated with the Eurozone crisis and the debt um, downgrade for the US, and run around, around 2015-16. And it, had its base in, it has its base in manufacturing weakness. But if you took away the big threat to manufacturing globally at present, which is the trade war, and started to remove those tariffs, then I think that could provide a huge boost to manufacturing, to investment, and uh, you know, things would start to look a lot better pretty quickly, and that could take pressure off central banks. The question is, are we going to see that? 
I think we are going to see phase one, but phase two will take a while to uh, to come. So it's possible, but I suspect that it's still at least six or nine months away. The beauty of um, Donald Trump, Shane, is you can expect the unexpected. That, that's precisely right. He has the point of support. And he does want to get re-elected, so that's why you can't rule out him pulling a rabbit out of the hat and saying, OK, we've just made a great deal with China on a comprehensive front. We're now doing phase two as well. So yeah. it, it's certainly possible. But yeah, one thing Trump wants is that he wants to get re-elected next year, and the best way to get re-elected is make sure the economy is humming. Yep. Um, leaving things the way they have been lately um, you know, just increases the risk that he won't be re-elected. You know, some people probably don't want to stand get re-elected. I'm trying to look at this objectively. Mm. Um, but I, I reckon one of the reasons he's backed off lately is, is he started to focus on the presidential election. Yep. So that's why you can't rule out a, um, a, a, a quicker return to something more positive from, uh, from Trump and the US. Shane Oliver, AMP Capital, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. And that was Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Now, yeah, they always ask me to do this ad for the book, but there's no paper. I've got to try and remember what it sells for. It's, it's a great book. It's called Join the Rich Club, and the Today program keep asking me to come back and talk about it all the time. Uh, I think the price is twenty four ninety five. I think it's a bargain for $24.95, Peter. It's uh, the cheapest investment in getting rich you can imagine. Isn't it's really a great about? investment. And look, also, it may not be you. The, the, the market or the... It could be just as important for your kids or grandchildren, yeah. right? Because you might have made all your money. You don't need any more. Any rich people listen to the show. <laughs> well, a lot of very successful people listen to the show. They don't yeah. need to become richer. But the people who might need help yeah. are actually your offspring or their offspring. And I think that's yeah. – uh, and sometimes, you know, look, again, people are afraid to, to, to say they don't understand. Some, so much of finance, just like most professions, is uh, lots of jargon, lots of complica- compl- complexity. Mm. And a lot of times people just aren't prepared to admit they don't understand. So giving them a really easy-to-read book yeah. that explains that and gives them the right tips and pointers, I think, uh, is a great little investment you can make for just twenty four ninety five. And where do you get it? At the switzerstore.com.au. No S in there, switzerstore.com.au. On the subject of success, I really thought it was worthwhile digging up an interview I did with Jerry Harvey not that long ago where I focused in on Jerry's lessons about building a business, the sort of influences that were really important for making him, A, a billionaire, but one of the most distinctive Australian businessmen of all time. Jerry Harvey. If your son or daughter came to you and said, Dad, I want to be rich and successful, what do I have to do to be rich and successful? One, I'd say to them, it's not the most important thing in the world by a long way. To be happy and contented is far more important. And I've made a bit of a study of of rich families, if you like, over the years. And there are not many instances of where you give the kid uh, a lot of money or a lot of goods, uh, you spoil them, that that kid comes out in front. Mm. Mostly, they have big problems in their life personal problems from 30, 40, 50 onwards. And I'd say that'd be in at least 80% of cases. There is a huge argument that you don't give your kids anything that they don't deserve. And they have to fight a little bit for it, do it on, on their own merit, and, and then you, you're probably giving them a better chance 
to have a more fulfilling life. Do you think the rich families where you've noticed 80% having these sort of problems you're talking about have had a leadership problem in a sense that the parents haven't really led wisely and that has passed on the problem? I don't think, I think all of those parents love their kids mm. and I don't think they were doing anything other than, than what they thought was right. Mm. Um, I think that in retrospect, uh, they would look back at it. Unfortunately, most of them are dead. Mm. But, but if they could look back on it, they'd say, if I had my time again, I would not be so generous with my offspring. And, and because I didn't do them a favour. And, and um, it's, it's, it's quite hard to find a lot of people that come from very rich families, mm. uh, kids, that are, that are really fulfilled as human beings. Would you tell these young people to have goals? Are goals important? Yeah, I think it's important to have uh, a, a goal, and, and, but it, it's got, in my opinion, it's got nothing to do with being rich. Mm. It's got everything about achieving things in your life, about being happy, about having a peace of mind um, and, and, and doing things that are examples to other people um, and, and that you can look back on your life and think, you know, it wasn't about money. It was about a lot of other things and money was a byproduct if, if, if that's what it has to be. But I think if you're bringing kids up and telling them they've got to be successful and you want them to be successful and make a lot of money and that's the measure. Right? I think you're crazy. Would you tell them to look around for mentors or older people who've got insights that can give them a competitive advantage? Yeah, sure. You've got to, you've got to do what you want to do. I've got four kids mm. and none of them want to run Harvey Norman. Mm. Now, at, at no stage have I ever suggested to them or hoped or wished or prayed that they would run Harvey Norman, mm. okay? I, am, I don't believe in dynasties and I think that everyone should try to fulfil their potential and, and if they can do that. So if you're saying to someone, you should, as a human being, fulfil your potential and, and, uh, and that should be a primary aim because you're only here once and you shouldn't waste that opportunity. And, and so... There is nothing more important. Now, if that means you're going to be a minister of religion or a doctor or a dentist... Or a short seller. Or a short... No. <laughs> or, a, or a whatever, yeah. right? Or farmer, whatever. Just be the best you can be. Now, that, in nearly every case, is not going to be the best that someone else... You know, you're never going to be better than the other bloke. Rare individual. But... You can strive for that and at the end of the day you can say, I wasn't the best, but I gave it my best shot. When people ask me, I often say, like, if you're in small business, I say, well, I think learning from legends and reading biographies, like, for example, I think uh, Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson was a great book. I, I learned a lot from like, mm. my business and also for personal drive. What do you think about reading biographies of successful people? Yeah, I've read a lot, mm. a lot, and, and trying to find the common denominator. Mm. Um, and and I think I think that's difficult <laughs> to try and find that common denominator because um, they're obviously very successful because they were driven. Mm. They they were driven to do that. Um, was it money that drove them there? Yes. But was it 
More important was that I want to succeed and be the best at what I do. And as, as I'm getting to that goal, I can see myself reaching it. And, and so that became the, the, the driving force. And the money just happened on the side. Mm. Um, how important, because when I, I've, over the years I've talked to people like you for, for many years, in, people not necessarily like you, but same background. Like? It doesn't matter. Well, Branson's a, a, a case in point. Mark Brewis, John yep. Simon, uh, Janine Alice, yes. all these people have yes. built businesses, yes. big brand names. Yep. And they all seem to me, and Edward Devane pointed out to me when I interviewed him many years ago, he said a lot of people like you and other successful people in all walks of life think outside the square. They look at whatever else is doing and they're continually prodding themselves, oh, well, how can I do it differently? How can I therefore draw attention to myself and the business that I'm trying to grow? Has thinking outside the square been important to you, Jerry? I, I think the most, one of the most important things that I've realised is that you see someone doing something, you do it better than them. And that doesn't mean that you have to think outside the square that much, perhaps. You just have to apply yourself more to, what could I do there to make what's in front of me better than, than the other guy's doing? And so I think, I think you can think outside the square, but I think it's just as important or more important to do it better than the other guy. Mm. Benchmark yourself, off your rivals, the people you yes, can do with. Yes, so, so when I've got a rival in retail, I look at them all and I think to myself, I want to be the best. Mm. I never think I want to be the second best. Mm. Now, if someone comes along and I, I think, holy hell, he or she is better than me. That organisation is doing a damn sight better job than I am. Mm. Is it because they're in the right sector and I'm in the wrong sector? Is it because they're smarter? Or is it in that period of time where they do well and that could change later on? All of these things. But so, you know, there are a number of retailers around I've met over the years that are fantastic. But the great majority are not, luckily for me, because I wouldn't be where I am if, if they weren't a little inferior. You know, I mean, I'm just bloody lucky that they weren't. Would you... I know you have young people who work in um, Harvey Norman and you like to bring them on because you think that they could be potential leaders in the business mm. in the future and whatever. Would you tell a young person not to be afraid to invest either time or money in becoming better, you know, you know learning stuff? Like if you've got salespeople here, do you actually make sure they do training courses so they become better at sales or does it, ha does it happen organically, magically? No, no. The, the one thing I say to every young person that works for me, because we're looking for stars all the time, there's nothing gives me more pleasure than at the end of an, a week or a month or a year I've found one, two, three, how many potential stars, people, you are better than all of them. And so they're mainly better because they have spent a fair amount of time um, mixing with the right people. And that's one of the first questions I ask if you're a young person here and you're doing really well. Say I see a store where the sales are up 30%, mm. I'll pick up the phone, who are you? Mm. And, and I say, okay, next question, who have you worked with? Mm. And, and nearly always they've worked with people I know that are really good. Mm. And if they ask me what advice would I give them, my advice to them always is 
Where do you work? Now I'll give you the names of three or four people you should spend time with because you will learn from them mm. and, 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 and use them as a sounding board or as a mentor or whatever and, and, and talk to them. And th because when you talk to someone that's really good at something and that person realises that you are really, they will nearly always tell you. Um, but if you're not interested, they'll pick up on that and probably yeah. discard you. So, you know, it's, it's one of the most pleasing things in my business is where I see people that have come from nowhere and they're earning a lot of money or they're running one of our big organisations and that sort of thing. And I think, wow, you know, this is very satisfying mm. because you're, you're seeing people that uh, achieve an awful lot mm. and you know that your organisation took them there. Okay. Now, I know you get distracted by dairy farms and racehorses and building your, your breeding empire. But when you were really building the name Jerry Harvey, was it all about retail? Was it like 24-7 focus on becoming the best retailer in the country? Because I, I, I often look at people and think, you're not dedicating enough time to your, your goal for success as an accountant or a doctor, or you're kind of part-time. Were you full-time, Jerry, on the way up? There was a, a time in my life where, in, from 35 to 40, mm. where I was spending a lot more time with horses than I was with retail. Mm. And then, at age 42, when we started Harvey Norman after Norman Ross, I decided then I would discard everything practically. Mm. So the horses went vroom down there and I just concentrated on retail. And I often ask myself, do I give this 100%? And the answer is no. Um, That's now, but then? No, never. Never. Because right? I always think to myself, um, what about if I tried harder? Mm. And I try hard, mm. but it's never hard enough. So, from my point of view, I, I always let myself down a bit. Mm. And, and yet I know I've put in a bigger effort, if you like, than most people, nearly everyone. Mm. Um, and, but I'm still not happy with that. Mm. So, if I said to you, I gave it 100%, no, I never gave it 100%. Mm. I'd like to have given it 100%. I'd like to do that tomorrow. But in fact, you never do. None but, of us do. Is that the advice if someone can give 100% to their, their life goal, whatever it might be? No. That would probably give you the result you want? No, because the thing is, you're never going to give it 100%. No one ever does. And, and you, 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 you think to yourself, what about if I did? Mm. How much better could I do? And then you say to yourself, when you've reached a peak, right, like mm. we have with our sales right at the moment in Australia with Harvey Norman, that's not good enough. Okay, I know we're flatlining. I'm not happy about that. Can it be better? Of course it can. And we could go up another 10%, right? But the only one thing that stops us, the quality of our people, right? Mm. If I could clone the top 10 or 20% of our people, I can increase my business 10% tomorrow without any trouble. And, and that, I spend more time on that than anything else. Quality of individual trying to put the right people in the right places to get the right result. Last question, how does someone impress you? I think people that give their best and they're decent, honest, 
good people. So if someone's a good person and, and they care about other people um, and they try to help other people and they're the leaders in their field and so it doesn't matter whether they're a gardener or a doctor or a politician or whatever they are. Um, to me, they're the people that that make the world go round and, and they're the people I'd spend more time with than anyone else. Well, Paul, that's the, the show. I, I always love this uh, podcast of ours because I, I know I always learn something. Well, some great insights from, from Jerry Harvey. I don't doesn't matter how many times you hear that story, Peter. Uh, look, he has some insights and he is a, such a distinctive Australian businessman. Yeah, without uh, a doubt. And I think there's a lot of lessons for all of us there. One thing I always remember when I've asked him the question over, over many times is, what do you think has been the most important reason for your success? And he will often say, the people who I chose to hang out with, I learned a lot by hanging out with the right crowd. And it's a lesson you keep learning year in, year out. And uh, as you and I know, Peter, it's really important to have the right team working for And that's you. why I hang out with a guy like you. You're brilliant. Absolute brilliant, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to go, I think. We're going to go. I will see you next week. <laughs>